Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, and I'm here with my uh, two usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and um, what's okay. oh, Todd, Todd Pruitt, that's <laughs> yeah. the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, PCA pastor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Good to be with you. We have a special guest today. Uh, I like to think of him as the G-man or even the tweet fighting man. <laughs> name, uh, it will be familiar, I'm sure, to most of our listeners. It's the Reverend Liam Golliger, who was almost lucky enough to be born in England. It just happened to get <laughs> slightly the wrong side of the border, but is now resident in Philadelphia, where he has been the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church for some years. Uh, Liam, uh, welcome to the show, and sorry you weren't quite in English. Yeah, I'm sorry to be with you. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry for those who have to be with you regularly. <laughs> well, we want to talk with you today. About, well, we want to roam fairly freely, but we want to start by talking about the upcoming uh, PCRT uh, taking place in Philadelphia, Michigan. The topic this year is Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, what are you going to be talking on at this conference, uh, Liam? Well, I know for sure that I'm going to be talking about sanctification. That's one of the topics that I have. And I've been giving a lot of thought to that because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about holiness generally and the way in which God works within us to produce the good works that he's ordained for us to walk in. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. I haven't thought yet, but what the other talk is. (laughs) (laughs) A, because I don't know what it's meant to be. And, And B, the, the sanctification one has been uh, absorbing me. Good. You know, it's interesting. Um, Liam and I are in the same denomination, the PCA. And, um, you know, five or six years ago uh, in, in our denomination, Liam, as you well know, and, and still going on to a certain extent, but it was kind of reaching fever pitch, uh, a, a real debate over the nature of sanctification with the rise of a lot of popular preaching and teaching in the PCA that, that at, at best was at least seeming to border on antinomianism and 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 a and a theology of sanctification that kind of left out the sanctification uh, i mean I'm, I, I know you remember that yeah. that, that debate quite well so, sometimes it's called the liberate you know theology because it came out of tully and chavidgen's uh conference and and kind of fraternal group yeah. of people un, under that name of liberate what would you say were the main features that they got wrong that that, that a good biblical um, theology of sanctification needs to correct. It seems to me if, if we if we start with the holiness of God, and by that we mean the Holy Father, the Holy Son, the Holy Spirit, we we see that that holiness as a as a, an essential attribute of God uh, is is not simply a, an indicator of His transcendence, His out thereness, but it's also the way in which God acts all the time. He acts not only is he above us, but he is for us in Christ, and Christ comes as the Savior in order that he might sanctify us. I mean, he, he comes, he sheds his blood in order that he purify us. 
Uh, and then he sends the Holy Spirit so that God is with us to purify us, to cleanse us, to direct us, so that all of our lives are being led in the direction of being prepared for the sight of God. I think of those words in Hebrews, uh, pursue holiness without which no one can see God. And when, when that command is given, that, that command is posited on the fact that the spirit of holiness dwells within us, that the Holy Son and the Holy Father are with us because they're with wherever the Spirit is, the Father and the Son are there too. And that the whole triune Godhead, if you will, is invested not simply in declaring us righteous, which is done, of course, in Christ, but also in perfecting us with a view to seeing the one who is the holy. And it's that process of perfecting us in which we are told to pursue, to pursue the holiness of God by obeying his commandments. The commandments are, are not simply there as a regimen. The commandments open up for us the life that pleases God, the life that, that is being prepared for the vision of God, the sight of God, the, the vision of holiness above is something that we're, that's being worked into us by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit does that. So if people say, if people say, oh, the Christian life has nothing to do with obeying the commandments, if they say Christian life has nothing to do with conforming my life to, to the will of God, what they're actually doing is they're denying the presence of the Holy One who is in our midst, and they're denying the presence of the Holy Spirit that is within them because the Holy Spirit within us invariably is pushing us in the direction of sanctification in terms of obedience to the will of God. Amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> it really makes me think, of, too, about how important our confession is to our, our sanctification. And I'm thinking, um, as you were talking about Hebrews, Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to our confession of hope without mm -hmm. wavering. Because Absolutely. he who promised is faithful. Um, but everything you just said was so beautiful and it leads us to, to praise God for who he is. But it's also something that we hold, can hold fast to, to continue to strive for holiness. Mm -hmm. um, the truth about who our God is Absolutely. and what he's done. Yeah. And although it doesn't all come down to, although, although holiness is not just an attribute of purity, in God. The, I think holiness includes majesty and infinity mm. as well as purity. Nonetheless, purity is a key factor in it. And mm. the work of Christ, I mean, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse one, 3, the work of Christ is that he might provide purification from sins. And then the work of the Spirit is to purify us from day to day. And in the purifying us, how does he do that? Well, he stimulates us to pursue holiness in, uh, in our lives. And that, I suppose that includes not just acts of obedience, but the, the reordering of our affections in a godly hey. direction. Uh, the reordering of our, our, of our minds towards the God who is holy, uh, um, and, and so on. How can we not desire holiness if we desire God? Exactly. Exactly. The way you set that up, Liam, is, is quite beautiful and I think connects to trends, theological trends we've seen perhaps over the last 15, 20 years. And 
you know, 15 years ago, the, the big news was the recovery of the doctrines of grace. Clearly, that underpins the, the kind of the existential aspects of what you're, you're talking about there. What we've been seeing in the last 18 months uh, is, is a sudden interest and recovery of the classical doctrine of God, classical theism. Uh, and the way you put it there is that those two things are in some ways two sides of the same coin. Do you have any, any thoughts on, on the recovery of classical theism that's going on in our midst at this moment? Well, I, I, it seems to me that in, in the movement towards recovering some of the doctrines of grace, the focus on that recovery, which was good and, and was necessary, of course, somewhere along the line, those things became unhitched from the doctrine of God. Uh, and yet, the very, the very doctrines, the sovereignty of God, for example, which underlies those, those doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God is inevitably, you can't even conceive of the sovereignty of God until your view of God is, is correct. And uh, all over the place, people have been amending the doctrine of God. Calvinists, the Reformed, have been playing around, tinkering around with the doctrine of God until God has lost his majesty. God has lost the sense of awe and wonder that we should have in his presence. We've kind of undercut God in so many ways and directions. And this recovery of God is going to lead to a renewed understanding of the atonement, not that our understanding is going to change, but it's going to be a renewed understanding of the significance of the atonement. And I think in particular, that the way in which, as Christian people, gathering in worship Sunday by Sunday, that whole event and the whole event of our Christian life is reordering our minds, the way we think, from the way we've been thinking in, we, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, we, we think along a historical timeline, we think in terms of the world and our experience of the world. And when we gather Sunday by Sunday, what's meant to be happening is we're meant to have our minds reordered in a vertical direction mm. towards the God with whom we communicate. And also, uh, down, down that vertical line, the power of His grace and holiness in, in our lives and so on. So I think, yeah. I think the uh, theology proper, the doctrine of God, is vital for the living of the Christian life. You know, and it's interesting because I, I think one of the reasons, I, I think there's two main reasons why it's been neglected um, for so long. One is that it doesn't, quote, seem practical. And the other reason is, is I think for some people, it just sounds like, you know, medieval esoteric wonderings on how, you know, akin to how many you know angels can balance on the head of a needle or, or, or some such thing. And that's not it at all and and if and if we conceive of of meditating on uh the, the the biblical witness affirmed historically by the church on what on who god is and what he is like is if, if we conceive of that as something that is boring and impractical then we're doing something wrong along the way we, we were having a discussion earlier where we talked about the fact that you know the the the, the quote the practical application of some sermons, not every sermon, but some sermons, the big point, the big practical application ought to be behold your God. Mm -hmm. If you think of the infinity of God and the ubiquity of God, God being everywhere, mm -hmm. all things, we don't have the consciousness of that 
then if I disobey a commandment somewhere, I, I'm not aware God's watching me disobey mm-hmm. you know, that command. Mm-hmm. There's the sense of actually all the time having the full attention of God, that every, every neuron in my head and every gene in my makeup and every second of my life, I have the full attention of the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Because wherever God is, God is there in the fullness of his being. And wherever I am, God is there in the fullness of his being, seeing what I'm doing, listening to what I'm saying. I always remember some words Eric Alexander said about some divinity students in Edinburgh. He said, those men know all there is to know about God, except that he's listening to them. And the reality, the, the reality is if we don't have, a, if we don't have a, an authentic view of God, then there is no incentive to live a holy life in mm-hmm, private. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the distressing things I've, I've seen, even among a lot of contemporary reformed uh, preachers and theologians, is that they, they seem to have departed from what we read so much among the pro-Nicene men of, of, of the first four centuries. They've departed. And while I wouldn't call them open theists, they've brought God down to a level, as it were, that he doesn't inspire the same kind of awe that um, the God who is simple and the God who is impassable and the God who is immutable and the God who is infinite yeah. can inspire. It's that sense that um, uh, because we've lost, I, I think part of it is, 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 is that a lot of contemporary Reformed theologians um, in their abandonment of some of the, the, the really good um, earlier Christian uh, metaphysics, um, they, they no longer have a concept for, for a sense of the Bible's analogical language. And that's so they, they, they take some of the analogies and therefore conceive of a God that's too like us in, in certain areas, too much like us. Do you have any particular person in mind there, Todd? I'm, I'm not going to name a name. I am absolutely not going to name a name. But, but I, you know, there's some of that stuff you, you, you expect to read from German liberals or open theists, you know, people like Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What's disconcerting is when you read some of those things among otherwise conservative reformed thinkers and, and, and theologians. And they are using similar language. There's no right. Doubt about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one thing um, at the Paideia conference, uh, so we yeah, almost why don't, there. You, why don't you all talk about the thing that I wasn't at? You weren't there, Todd. I, yeah, I was, I was only, only the cool ones. The cool kids got to go. Yeah. And, and Blair Smith was kind of, when he, was, he gave a talk on the patristics in relation to the Trinity and um, Nicene faithfulness, and he talked about the value that we have of having a proper grammar to use um, when we talk about the Trinity because of the grammar that had been given to us um, in pro-Nicene Christianity. So, when you contrast that to just pure biblicism or um, biblical theology that is detached from classical theism, then you're missing that grammar, which kind of can serve as guardrails. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You see, a lot of people think that you have to use the language of the Bible alone, mm-hmm. uh, occasional letters from Paul and so on. And, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It is inerrant. It is God's word breathed out by God. 
And he intends that we not only read along the lines, but we read through the lines, that we, that we see how what, what's revealed in one place connects with somewhere else, and mm-hmm. that our eyes are being pointed in the direction of the God who is above us and outside of time, outside of the experiences on our timeline. So we mustn't just look at the text itself and execute the text. We must, mustn't just follow the story through the Bible. We must recognize that all through the Bible, we have these punctuation marks where the God who is appears, reveals himself using some finite source or, 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 or instrument rather in order that we might know that he's there because the infinite has to use a finite instrument to communicate to finite beings. So that's what he does, and, and that's what's happening. But those, those moments are meant to, to direct our gaze to the one who is. You know, the, Jacob's ladder is meant to remind us that the God who's there, for whom everything is present, not passing in time, he's not just everlasting, as the, the word everlasting is now being used, that God just lasts a long time kind of the, in our time sphere. He is eternal. Everything for God is now. And therefore nothing surprises him. Uh, everything falls out according to his purposes and plans as he works out his purpose and plan for our salvation and our perfection here below. You know, I think some confusion has come in with, with folks just in terms of pitting um, systematic and uh, uh, biblical theology against each other or, or arranging a hierarchy where we say, you know, biblical theology has to take precedence over systematic theology because biblical theology has the word biblical in it and systematic theology has the word systematic in it. And what I try to explain to people is that systematic theology, you know, properly done, of course, is as profoundly biblical as anything can be because it seeks to to uh, reckon with the whole bible together so that what we say about god takes into account everything that the bible says about god um but but some of the some of the people who want to construct this hierarchy with it where they say yeah i'm you know i'm all for systematic theology but but obviously biblical theology has to be above that systematic theology is kind of under helping biblical theology and and when i get people to unpack that a little bit further a lot of it just comes down to an aesthetic which says well you know the one has the word bible in it or or biblical so therefore it's got to be the the, the primary lens that we look through and systematic theology you know just has the word systematic which leaves me feeling cold so it needs to be further down the ladder and unfortunately then we we are robbed from from the real service that systematic theology does. Um, the word system is used as a kind of curse word, you know. I mean, yes, you exactly. Stick to your system, you make the Bible fit your system. Right. In fact, good systematic theology is, in fact, more biblical right. than biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Biblical theology is simply following the development of the story uh, of God, whereas systematic theology done well tries to hoover up everything the Bible says on right. everything. Throughout the whole of Scripture, we take yeah. as it takes Scripture as the material mm-hmm. that God has revealed to us in right. His totality. Right, and and I and I love good writing on biblical theology. I love it. it. It's it's wonderful. But as you say, biblical theology primarily has as its concern God as He is revealed in His work of redemption. Now, there's infinite value in that, of course. 
but um, it's, it's, it's a more narrow focus than what systematic theology is, which is the full scope of God's self-revelation throughout the Bible, um, not just in his work of redemption, but in his work of creation and in, and in everything else. And, and systematics, actually, because it, it finds unity, mm-hmm. uh, the jargon of systematics, if you want to yes. call it that pejorative, the jargon actually helps you read the Bible holistically right? because yeah. it draws attention to the unity. Mm-hmm. So, a good high Christology really helps you actually understand how the plot line of the Bible culminates in right. the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing about biblical theology, of course, is particularly as it, as it tracks redemptive historically, is that not every passage in the Bible is reducible to redemptive history. Right. Uh, I would say the, the opening of, of John's Gospel makes clear ontological, metaphysical claims. Mm-hmm. which undergird the subsequent gospel narrative, yes. but are not immediately, they're, they're much better dealt with as systematic issues, right. if you like, than redemptive historical ones. I think Isaiah and John, or Isaiah as is properly described, <laughs> uh, Isaiah and John in the Bible are, are models, really, I think, of uh, contemplative, systematic, theologians, they, they are gathering together, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are gathering together truths from throughout the Bible in order to teach us about the God who is there in a, in a fuller, deeper way. Their vision of God is great because they're, they're vacuuming up everything from all of Scripture to give us this view of God under the inspiration mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit. And I think they're good models, I think, for theologians, really. Yeah. Yeah, Matt Levering's book that you recommended to me, Liam, Scripture and Metaphysics, actually takes John and Isaiah at one point and does a great job with that. Uh, uh, it's an expensive book, but if you're listening and you've got a few dollars to spare, Matthew Levering's Scripture and Metaphysics, excellent, excellent yeah. examination of the relationship between systematic and biblical theology. Yeah. Well, and you, when you couple that with the, the retrieval of classical theology, it also highlights the fact that it's not just me and my Bible. It's not merely, you know, whatever scholar I'm reading even and their take on things as educated as that may be, but that we have these interpretive communities and that that kind of connects me, even as a layperson, into the whole story of active traditioning as well. I believe, and the responsibility that we have in our generation to be tradents to the faith, to faithfully pass down our confession to the next generation. Absolutely. And I think the responsibility that lies on us is not just to hand a Bible to to the next generation, but to handle that Bible along with what the church has learned from Scripture, what the church Mm -hmm. has the communion of saints as the people of God. I think, you know, when Paul says it's together with all the saints that we understand the length and breadth and height of the love of God, that's what he's referring to. We need all the saints to help us understand what God has revealed to us. And that's what we're meaning when we make confession of our faith together, whether we recite a creed or we subscribe to a confession of faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh, one is of it, us is, has to decide to wrap up. Oh, oh okay. It's, hey, I opened. It's not my job. It's I know time. you don't want to stop. I know you want me to. <laughs> Never. <laughs> our, our, we saved you for the end of the day. 
Uh, <laughs> at this point, we're all just in bad moods. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Todd got a spiciest in the last recording, so. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I had to. I had to put Amy in her place. Seriously? She was being toxically feminine. Oh my! And it, and it was hindering my toxic masculinity. <laughs> I feel abused. Yes, yes, yes. I do, and I don't like it. <laughs> well, this has been a, a good discussion. I, I love the fact that um, I see a a. I guess the word would be a rediscovery and a, and a, and a renewed appreciation for uh, the doctrine of God that was really formulated by, by the great theologians in the first four centuries of the church. I, I remember 20 years ago or so when people like myself really discovered for the first time the doctrines of grace, and that was a wonderful um, movement at that time. Some of the fruit since then can be a little goofy, but, but that was a wonderful thing. It was a great gift for so many to kind of be introduced for the first time to the doctrines of grace. And I, and I see that happening in a similar way with, with the doctrine of God and, and classical theism. And that's a very encouraging thing because when we get the doctrine of God wrong, um, that's not just a technical issue. That's impiety. It, it's impious to, to say the wrong things about God, to misrepresent him. Um, you can misrepresent me and be okay, but we don't want to misrepresent God. And so I'm, I'm very encouraged by this trend we're seeing, and it was fun to have Liam on um, to talk about this, and it's certainly a topic that we'll, that we'll continue to talk about and encourage folks with. So Liam Gallagher, pastor at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, we hope that we did not interrupt you know, uh, anything super vital like nap time. or. Uh, but uh, I, I want to capture the video of Liam that we have earlier, but maybe that's, uh, that's, that's for another, uh, <laughs> a, another program. But um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're ever in uh, Philadelphia on a Lord's Day, I would encourage you to go by 10th Presbyterian Church and worship with them and, and uh, be fed um, through the pulpit ministry there. They do a wonderful job. Uh, but we're so glad that uh, everybody joined us uh, today. We did mention earlier that Liam is uh, one of the speakers at the uh, upcoming Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. There's two locations, one in Grand Rapids, Michigan, March 15th through 17th, and one in Philadelphia, April 26th through 28th. The theme Again, is redemption accomplished and applied. And if you'll go over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you will see a place where you can enter to win uh, some registrations for the conference. You can win a free registration to one of those two locations. And so head over to our, to our website to enter to win that. And while you're there, um, if you feel so impressed as to make a donation, uh, this is a uh, listener-supported podcast. And uh, if you would like the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals to continue to provide this for you, we'd love to receive your money. And so uh, feel free to think about making a donation there. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about how does God define marriage and what does he define as its essential purposes, which lived out have millions of potentialities, but boiled down to a very few basic things. And, and the fact is, is that a lot of what's out there in terms of helping people think about marriage and do marriage is kind of up in the air. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. When you contrast that to just pure biblicism or um, biblical theology that is detached from classical theism, then um, you're missing that grammar, which kind of can serve as guardrails. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you want to add anything about wakey uh, <laughs> 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 wakey? Would, would, would our guests like to add anything to that? <laughs> People listening can't see this, but all we can see is the ceiling of Liam. Maybe, maybe he was snoozing <laughs> during that. He fell, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. <laughs>